over the course of your life, what have you learned and where have you learned it from? Maybe your parents, your siblings. Maybe if you, if you've, if you grew up in church, you learned some things in church. Maybe from pastors or other Christians. There are all kinds of places that we learn about marriage. We learn about relationships. But see, here's the catch. Some of the stuff we learn is awesome. And that stuff we learn will lead us to having great, fulfilling, healthy, God-honoring relationships. And some of the stuff we learn, not so much. Some of the stuff we learn actually will result, if you put into practice, will result in hurt, disagreement, fighting, even divorce. You see, we all have stuff that we've learned that we need to unlearn and relearn some new stuff. So over the next five weeks, we're going to be talking about relearning relationships. And we want to take, take a fresh look at what biblical marriage is. Because if you grew up in the church, chances are you've heard some stuff. Or if you have friends or family that are Christian, you've probably heard some stuff about marriage. And some of that stuff needs to be relearned. So we're going to take a fresh look. And, and we're going to hit the major, big, even hot, hot, hot topics around marriage over the next five weeks. We're going to talk about headship submission. We're going to talk about um, gender roles. And if you're familiar with the terms complementary and egalitarian, we're, we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about this idea of a woman, a wife as helper. What does that really mean? Um, so we're going to tackle some pretty big stuff here. And, and I'm excited for it. I love this. This is an annual series that we do, our relationship series. It is our most attended series all year. They are the most watched videos online, even relationship series from like three years ago. They're still some of the most watched sermons online. So it's exciting. I love this series, mainly because my wife and I, we love healthy relationships. And we want you to have healthy, God-honoring relationships. So we're going to hit all kinds of topics. But this week, this week, we're going to start at the very beginning. We're going to start with the purpose of marriage. Figure it's a good place to start. And so to help me with this, I'm actually going to have my lovely wife, Pamphoa, come and teach this with me. So you get two pastors for the price of one today. All right. Thank you, Greg. So we all go into marriage or prepare for marriage with expectations. And most of us have an idea of what marriage is supposed to be like. So before Greg and I got married, my expectation of marriage was that I would have somebody who could spur me on to be a better person, and that Proverbs 27.7 was my verse where it says, or 27.17, as iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. <laughs> so imagine my surprise when we got married and Greg did not appreciate my sharpening him. Nope. Nope. And so for me, now my expectation of marriage, totally different. You see, I was expecting marriage uh, th that a, a spouse or wife would be a companion. Because you see, my family did a bunch of things together growing up. 
So when I was a kid, man, we would play board games. We'd go on picnics. We went on trips and vacations. Um, we, like, my parents always came to my sporting events, which now looking back, I realize how torturous that was because I'm pretty much terrible at everything. And they sat through it. But, but my family did so much together. So then as I prepared to get married, I was expecting the same thing, that we would be wonderful companions, okay? I had no interest in getting my iron sharpened, okay? Zip. That was not even on my radar. So what about you? What do you think the purpose of marriage is? Whether you're married and you're right in the thick of marriage already, or you're single and you're looking forward someday, or maybe this year, to getting married, what do you think it is? There are some possibilities. I've heard lots of people share their ideas about what marriage is. As a family therapist, I hear lots of ideas. <laughs> some people are like Greg. They think marriage is for companionship. Others think marriage is about happiness. I need somebody who's going to make me happy. Others would say marriage is for um, someone to be there for me always, to take care of me. Others would say marriage is what society expects of me, so I need to get married. And for other people, it's like we dated so long, it was kind of just the next step. So what is it for you? Did any one of these kind of resonate with you? Or have you ever stopped to ask the question, what is the purpose of marriage? Now, I'm really glad we don't have to answer that question ourselves. Because God has actually answered that. It's right there in Scripture. This is not a mystery. This is not something we, we have to guess and take shots in the dark or pick up what we learned from our families, like me. God has answered this question in Scripture. So what if I told you, what if I told you that there was one verse in Scripture that both Paul, excuse me, both Jesus and Paul used to explain other verses on marriage? Did you know that? Okay, so Jesus, Jesus used this passage, this one verse, to explain why a married couple should not get divorced. Paul used this one verse to explain why you should not have sex with someone who isn't your husband or your wife. And Paul again used this one verse to explain and build a foundation for his, his gender roles of husbands and wives and submission and love and leadership. He used this one verse as the foundation of it. Imagine that. Three of the most significant passages in the New Testament about marriage all refer to one verse. So what is that verse? It's this. And that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. That's the verse that Jesus quotes and Paul quotes. Imagine that. This is one verse on marriage that both Jesus and Paul built other verses on marriage about. Shouldn't that tell us it's pretty important? In fact, we're going to argue today that this 
is the purpose of marriage. This is the, this idea of oneness between a husband and a wife. That that is God's ordained purpose of marriage. And in fact, it's so important. It's so foundational in marriage that you have to get this one right. And all the other things, divorce, sex, gender roles, and everything else, all of that gets built on this. So you know what? If you don't get this one right, you're not really going to be able to get any of the others right. That's how important the idea of oneness in marriage is. So we're going to take a look at the verse that Greg uh, talked about. So in Genesis 1, we find that uh, God created the heavens and the earth, and he created the animals, and then he created human beings. And then in chapter 2, the writer of Genesis takes a step back and he actually tells us about the first wedding. So let's look, look at Genesis 2, verse 18 and verse 21 through 25. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. By the way, you know why woman was called woman? Because God created her. Adam took one look at her and go, whoa, man. <laughs> that is not biblically true. <laughs> Thank you, honey. You're welcome. So, yes, God brought the woman to the man. Um, and so in case there's any doubt about whose idea was it to put two totally different people together and expect them to do life together, that it was God's idea. God brought the woman to the man so that they could be joined together. And as Greg mentioned earlier, Jesus referred back to Genesis 2.24. They didn't have verses back then, but he referred back to that passage. Um, when some religious leaders were trying to trap Jesus by asking him, is it lawful in our Mosaic law for a man to divorce his wife? And they actually said, can he divorce her for any reason? And this was Jesus' answer. In fact, we find this passage this story in Mark 10 as well as Matthew 19. So we're going to look at Jesus' response in Matthew 19, verse 4 through 6. So this is Jesus saying, Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh 
So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Now, in case you have a strong reaction to Jesus' words about the permanency of marriage, his disciples were also taken back by what Jesus said. In fact, their response to him in Matthew was, if this is the situation between a husband and a wife, it is better not to marry. <laughs> That's right there in the Bible. Okay. So, what was God's design for marriage? What does it require? We're going to look at that. Looking at Genesis 2 here, we learn that marriage requires two things in order to reach oneness. First is leaving and then uniting so that there can be oneness. Bob Lapine from Family Life Today says that if a couple is having problems in their marriage, he pretty much can tell that the problem is either in their leaving, in their uniting or cleaving, or in their inability to establish that oneness. And so let's look at each of those. What does it mean to leave? What does it mean to unite? Okay. Leaving is an interesting thing here, because if you notice, the man has to leave. Therefore, a man must leave his father and mother. Now, the Jewish people practice petrilocal marriage, which is where the husband brings the new wife to his family, and they actually live with his family. So when in Genesis it says that the man must leave his mother and father, it's metaphorical. It's metaphorical. So we're going to look at what that means. Um, in the King James Version, this word that the, the New International Version translates into leaving, they used to use the word forsake. And that's actually kind of a better capture, because to forsake means to uh, abandon, to leave, to cut the ties with. And this is more of a psychological, emotional. So for this young man who has this new bride, he is supposed to set up his own house. So if they lived in a tent, he would, his tent would be next to it. Um, but this leaving, this idea of starting your own home and having a physical space. But it also, more importantly, means an emotional leaving, an emotional uh, loyalty that is now transferred to someone else, where the, the man's top priority was his parents, it now must be his new wife. And that's what it means to leave, physically and emotionally. And many of you can already see that for, for Hmong people, we also practice patrilocality, which is that the bride comes to live with the, the groom's family. So this is, again, very countercultural, mm -hmm. that the husband leaves his father and mother and is united to his, his wife. So what does this uniting mean then? Again, back in the King James, the word that was used is cleave. And I, I like that word because it, it actually, I, we don't use it much anymore, but I grew up th with the King James. I so. have a King James wife with like a New Living Translation guy. That's right. <laughs> so I, I love to cleave to Greg, right? So physically, 
cleaving uh, has this notion of being glued together. Uh, that's how the word has been used in the Bible, like bonding. It represents like cementing together. But it also can have the idea of being steadfastly following, to follow closely, and then, of course, to physically cling to. So cleave, you leave, and then you cleave. And to cleave physically is to be close to, to live with, but it also talks about the physical sexual union of a man and to his bride, to his wife. And that certainly is a big part of marriage, the cleaving in sexual union. But in addition to that, cleaving also means emotional attachment. It means creating a loyalty to and a dependency on and being uh, emotionally linked together so that your decisions are linked together, so that you are attached to this person. So I want you to remember these two words, to leave and to cleave. Okay, you have to do those two things. So now, if you manage on leaving and cleaving well, then the passage the Bible tells us that two now become one. That, that, that two become one. Now, that is some of the worst math in the world. If you think about this, one plus one equals one. I could go down to the nursery and those kids would know that that's wrong. Okay? That is just some bad math. But that's how God created marriage. Sort of. It's not exactly like that, though. Because when we hear the word one, we often think of the number one. We have two people, the numeral two, and they become one, the numeral one. But that's not really what this passage is talking about. You see, this word one in Hebrew, yes, it does mean the, nu the number, the numeral one, but... In certain uses, it actually is something much bigger, that it actually talks about unity or oneness. That's why that's such a great word, <coughs> that this unified sense of togetherness. And so often we think about a couple becoming one as numerically one. So I, I've, known, I've known a lot of couples that we've talked to over the years that have felt guilty because they aren't doing the same things, they don't like the same things. Now, that perspective, that is look at thinking it of as numerical oneness. We have to do the same things, we have to like the same things, and this is a pretty prevalent view um, uh, especially sometimes around churches and, and that this idea that a husband and wife have to do everything together. Um, but my, my best experience with that is I was in youth ministry prior to River Life. I was in youth ministry for about 15 years as a volunteer. And I would go to these youth events at, at our previous church. I'd go and to these I youth events. Not. And she did not. Okay? Because youth ministry wasn't her passion. And so I would go and then, and then other adults would ask, oh, where's Pefoa? I'd be like, oh, she's at home. And, and then, like, the next year, I'd be doing, oh, where's Pefoa? Oh, she's at home. Literally, six years in, 
People are still asking me, where's Pefua? And like, what did they, like, I want to just be like, dude, you realize she has never stepped foot in a youth event. Why do you keep asking me? <laughs> but what it showed, what it showed was this thought that a husband and wife have to be together and do the same things. That's a numerical perspective of oneness, of the number one. But instead, what the Bible talks about is unity. Okay? And so this idea of, of one being unified in unity is it's actually spoken about in a couple other big areas in Scripture. And that's one way, one good principle of how do we understand one thing in Scripture is we look at how it's used other areas of Scripture. So the biggest and most important oneness in all of Scripture is God. God is one. So in the Trinity, among the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, there is perfect oneness unity, and wholeness. There, God is one, but God is three, but God is one. And it's not a numerical one. It is this unified unity of wholeness. So when you are married and you are living out oneness in marriage, you are living a reflection of God. Now, the other big area in Scripture that, that uses this idea of oneness, not just numerical one, is that's referring to the church. So here are some of the things, just some of the things that Scripture says to the church. You have one body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. It says there should be no dissension division, or quarrels among you. It also says, be like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit. Those are all things that God commands for the church. And, he, and God commands the church to be one, right? to be unified. So as husband and wife, you are living out a reflection of the church. And Paul even uses that metaphor of the church. So now, let's take those same principles, those same principles, and let's apply them to husbands and wives. So listen to this. Husbands and wives, you have one body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Husbands and wives, there should be no dissension, division, or quarrels among you. Husbands and wives, be like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit. See, that's just a snapshot of what oneness looks like in marriage. That's a snapshot of God's core purpose for married, for being married. So married couples, is that what your relationship is like? Is that what it looks like? Now, if we return to Genesis 2, and there's, there's this amazing thing that happens when a married couple, when a husband and wife are living out oneness. There's this amazing thing, and, and the passage says it. It says, they were naked and not ashamed. They were naked and not ashamed. Now, that is an incredible picture of peace, of innocence, of vulnerability, of trust 
that happens between two people. And that's what oneness brings to marriage. So marriage is not just about one person. It's not just about you. In fact, marriage requires that you leave and you cleave and you change and transform from a meanness to a we-ness so that your priorities, your decisions are not about what's in my best interest, but what's in the best interest of both of us, of our couple's relationship. So let's talk a little bit about what oneness is not. Greg had mentioned some of them, but let's just recap. Oneness is not being the same. Like that, I have to do everything Greg does. Although when we first got married, I watched every uh, adventure movie, every, you know, explosion movie, because I thought that's what oneness meant. That wherever he went and whatever he liked, I had to go and do with him. Okay, that's not oneness. Changing so that you are exactly like the other person. And it's not about doing everything together so that, like Greg said, everywhere he goes, I have to go. Every time I go shopping, he has to go and hold my purse. You know, it's not like that. You don't have to do everything together. Look around for the man seat. Okay, where's the seat? I know there's one around here somewhere. <laughs> and oneness doesn't mean that you give up your personality and your identity. I mean, in counseling women, I've heard many of them say, I don't know who I am anymore. Like, I have to, like, lose who I am. I can't be intelligent. I can't be um, loud. I can't be funny. Like, I lose my personality. And that's not what oneness is. And oneness is not where you see a couple, and they do do everything together, but it's everything that one of them decided for both of them. And, one, and the other person had no say. That's not oneness. And oneness is not just staying together because there's nothing else we can do. Um, the Hmong have a saying, jiang lu shi yi, which means we're just rotted, rotting logs that are holding each other up. That just sums up our marriage. It's horrible, but we're just staying together. And that is not oneness. So if that's not oneness, what is it? What do we need to relearn about oneness? So I, I want to give you a few snapshots of what oneness is. So first, it's shared values and goals. Shared values and goals. So for instance, I know that if I come to Pafoa and say, you know what, there's a family that's struggling. I would love to help, help them out with some money. Could we, could we give them some money? I know without a doubt she's going to say yes. The reason is we both have the shared value of generosity. If we have someone that kind of needs a place to stay for a short time or a long time and we have an, an open room, it's, I mean, we ask, but we know the answer. Because we both have a shared value that our stuff is meant to be shared with others. So that there are shared values and goals between you two. And this one is especially important if you have children, that you share the same values about how to raise your children. Um, it's about values about how you use your money, how, how often you attend church, what's the priority of God in your life. 
This is a shared value and a life goal that needs to be there for oneness. So another one, another picture of what oneness is, is working together and celebrating together. Fundamentally, for, for if you're married, are you in this together? Or are you kind of in it for yourself first? And maybe you would never say that explicitly, but when push comes to shove, you're, you, you know in your heart, you're kind of in it for yourself. But are you in it together? Okay, so, so just this week, um, before I had the task of completing all of the year-end giving statements. By the way, if, if, you, if, you have, if you're looking for your giving statement, we have them out on the table here. Some of you already received it electronically. We emailed it. Uh, we have the rest in envelopes out at the table you can grab after service. But, but she had that task. She, she had taken on that task. And unfortunately, it was very manual, very labor-intensive because we switched systems and it took a lot of labor. And that was, she had volunteered. It was not my task. I had other things to do. But you know what? She was getting buried. So I said, okay, I'll help. I'll put aside my stuff, and I'll, I'll help you with this. So we, we did. We kind of did it together and, and got it finished. Because for us, when she wins, we win. When she succeeds, we both succeed. A win for one is a win for both. And that's what working together and celebrating together looks like. It's not always doing the same things, but it's knowing that a win for one is a win for both. I remember when um, God called me to come to the Twin Cities (laughs) to return to the Hmong community. I knew that wherever I went, Greg would have to go to. Right? That's what oneness is. If one of you goes in one direction, the other person is glued to you, they kind of have to go that way too. So when I brought it up to him, his immediate answer was, yes, let's move from sunny Southern California to frigid Minnesota. <laughs> foolish, foolish person. <laughs> so what else? Here's another one. Here's another one of what oneness looks like. Is a balanced give and take. Like before I already mentioned this idea that when one person always has to give in, the other person kind of always gets their way. That's not balanced. That's not oneness. That's domineering. But oneness is this balanced give and take. Now, to be honest, this is, out of all of this stuff, this is probably our weakest area. Even after 24 years of marriage, we're still not great at this one. And we just fought about this one last night. We did. <laughs> and, it's, and, and for me, it's because when you, when you are married to someone who is this smart and this competent and this intuitive and this spiritually wise and all of this, and you're a little less, that's a tough pairing to deal with. And we do, and we still struggle with it, and we still disagree, and we still fight over it, and... Um, So I don't know if it's going to take another 24 years to figure this one out. I hope not. I'll I'll figure it out when I have to teach on submission. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) But, But this is an important one. Is there a balanced give and take? Or is one person kind of clearly the top and one kind of the bottom? Okay. One more. One more is in one is this idea of protecting your oneness, protecting your marriage, okay? And this is not allowing anyone 
or anything to get into your unity. To weasel itself in and break apart that unity. So whether it's, um, whether it's things like ex-girlfriends, ex-boyfriends, whether it's the, hey, we're just talking, we're just chatting, we're not doing anything, or whether it's porn, or whether it's spending a ton of time apart, like you go to work and then you go out for drinks after work and you come home late, and whether it's absence, there are other things that are, are dividing that unity. They're getting into that unity. So like Pofol and I, we, we, are, we are very protective of our relationship. We're very cautious about how we relate to members of the opposite sex. We talk about it often, whether it's phone calls or text. We'll often say, yeah, so-and-so just texted me. Just keep everything on the table, everything on the up and up. Um, would it be okay if I had coffee with so-and-so? Well, what's it going to be? Who's going to be? Why are we doing it? How do we think about this person? Where's it? Yeah, and so we have these conversations quite often, actually, because we want to protect our oneness. So with this new perspective about the oneness of marriage, we want to leave you with something to do this week. So for those of you who are married, we want you to take time together with each other and actually talk to each other, assess your marriage. How is our oneness? How are we doing in oneness? What are areas where we're weak? And what are areas of our oneness where we're really strong and we want to keep it up? So we want you to have that conversation sometime this week. Now for singles, whether you're single or dating or engaged, okay, the conversation for you is take a look at the way you date. Take a look at the way you choose a partner. Are you choosing a partner who has shared values as you do? Are, 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 you, do, are you looking for a person who's in it with you or kind of in it for themselves? Okay? Another question to ask is, are you protecting the future oneness between you and your future spouse? So, for instance, are you sleeping together? If you're sleeping together, you are not protecting your future oneness. You're creating a false oneness, a damaging oneness right now. And, and like what, what, what uh, before I read is that this is that a husband and wife, they, they get cleaved together through sex. And that happens whether you're married or not. So are you protecting your oneness? Or are you dating and are you trying to live out married? Are you trying to live out oneness, taking vacations together and doing things together, sharing bank accounts together, sharing phone plans together? Are you living out oneness when you're really two? You're not one yet because that's something God creates in marriage, not dating. So for us, it took us a long time to figure out oneness. We had about five years of arguing over it. Warfare. <laughs> about 10 years of trying to figure it out. And now we've had about nine or 10 years of living pretty well in oneness. So this isn't something you're gonna figure out overnight. So you know what? Be patient with yourself. Have grace for yourself. Have grace for your spouse or your boyfriend or your girlfriend.
Be patient. Allow God to guide you and speak to you. Allow the Spirit to direct you. Go slowly at this. This isn't something you can force. It's something you learn over time. But you have to engage. You have to learn. You have to work at it. So as you work at it, be patient with, with yourself and with each other. Um, and one, So one of the things that Pafo and I have, and we kind of close with this, is an invitation. One, one of the things that we, we're going to be kicking off in two more weeks is a marriage enrichment class. We're going to be doing this on Sundays after church for two hours from 12 to 2. And uh, we're going to be co-teaching it. And it's open for all married and engaged couples. And I'm so excited for this because we're going to be using an assessment, a marriage tool that we use for all, with all of our premarital counseling. And I love it. And pretty much everyone who's gone through premarital with us has loved it. But now we're, we're actually opening it up to any, anybody who's married or engaged. And if you have friends and family who don't go to River Life but would really benefit, you can invite them to join us just for uh, the class from 12 to 2. Yep. So there's a sign-up at the Connection Center. You can, you can get more information online on Facebook or on our website. And there's an online sign-up on our website as well. So I encourage you, if you want some help having these conversations... This, this class is going to be the single best eight hours you could ever invest in. Two-hour class over four weeks. And the assessment is very thorough, so it will assess your relationship. And it will be there in black and white for you to see your strengths and your growth areas as a couple. Yep. So, so we encourage you. Sign up for that. Uh, it, it's, it's $40 per couple. It's a nominal fee, $35 for the assessment, 5 bucks for a couple workbooks that we'll be using as well. So it is wonderful, and it's a great way to build some good, strong oneness in your relationship. Right. Why don't you close us in prayer? Okay. Father, we thank you that marriage was your idea and that you wanted uh, human beings to have each other to do life with and to become one. So Lord, as you, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are one, would you knit our hearts together that the husbands and wives here would be one with each other, Lord. And we pray blessings upon uh, the young singles who will one day uh, be joined with their spouse. Lord, that you would bless them with protection now so that their oneness would be pure and holy before you when they're married. Lord, empower us through your Holy Spirit because we are selfish and we are individuals and we think on that level. But only through your Holy Spirit can we live out this oneness. So bless us through the power of the Holy Spirit and in Jesus' name, amen.